I usually uh, preach in a room that is big enough for me to just yell really loud. Um, so if I start yelling into the microphone, it's just out of habit, so I apologize for that. Um, but yeah, uh, I think my dad and the entire family is probably watching the sermon at uh, in Buffalo, uh, New York right now with all of the, the kids gathered around, which is fitting because usually, you know, Tatiana and I watch the service online when we are home. So we're usually with you guys, even though you don't see us, and I'm sure they're with us gathering farm stories as we speak. Um, I woke up yesterday, or was it in the middle of the day, or maybe, whatever, I got a message from, we have like a family chat, whatever, and like the first thing that I see in the family chat is my grandpa, Papa, pointing a gun up in a tree, so I'm sure they're going to come home with a bunch of stories about what's going on um, over there, I don't know what he was doing really, but um, I was surprised, and I was like, Tatiana, did you see this, and she was like, Oh, no, I haven't checked yet. I'm like, well, you better check because they're pointing guns in trees, and I don't know if they're shooting anything important. But, yeah, so they're coming back with stories, and I'm sure that uh, next year we'll be joining them so that we can get some stories too. We figured it would be a little bit too much with Wolfgang because he's new. Now, um, I have been watching, so I've heard the comments about the name Wolfgang. I've heard. Don't worry. And um, people, yeah, he likes That's good. So some people like it. So there's mixed reviews in the crowd about Wolfgang, the name. And um, the, what I usually tell people for, like, the quick answer for why I call him Wolfgang, I'm just like, oh, we just named him after Wolfgang Mozart. He's going to be a pianist. Uh, don't worry about it. Um, but that's actually not the true story for why I, I named my son Wolfgang. And the story goes back way farther to actually when I was in high school. Um, some of you know I, I did wrestling in high school. And we went to this one really big tournament this one time. And we looked at the brackets. You know, you want to see who you're matched up against in the tournament. I, we went and we saw this guy. that Nobody knew him. He was from a D3 school. So he was just a bigger school than us. And his name was Wolfgang McStravick. And, and we, I, I mean, all of us are looking at this bracket. It's not even my bracket. And, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, Wolfgang McStravick. And, like, all the thoughts that are going through our head, we're like, I don't want to face that guy. He sounds, he sounds really, like, scary and timid. Wolfgang McStravick, what is that? And ever since then, I just kind of stuck with me. And, and was that he was actually in my, my buddy's weight class, and the guy went on to win the whole tournament. So, I mean, we get some uh, – we get some – uh, comments from people saying like Wolfgang he's going to get bullied and I'm just like like if his name is Wolfgang I think he's going to be the bully I don't know <laughs> so yeah that's why we named him Wolfgang that's the the true story but it takes too long to tell it to everyone who asks and everyone asks why we call him Wolfgang so okay so today we are actually going to be in uh, Hebrews chapter 4 and we're going to be going over a very important passage. This may be one of the greatest passages in the whole Bible. Um, it's, it's so important. The book of Hebrews is just full of, of the most important um, you know, doctrines and information about Jesus. Because really, the book of Hebrews is, as most of the New Testament is, it's about Jesus. Uh, about Jesus and who Jesus is, what he's done for us. And we find some of the most important information about Jesus in the book of Hebrews. So I love the book of Hebrews, even though we don't really know who wrote it. But as the book of Hebrews says itself, that all scripture is God-breathed. So whether or not we know who wrote it, it doesn't matter because the Holy Spirit um, inspired it all. And you can really see it in, in the book of Hebrews here. So before we get into it, let's just pray, and then I'll go through uh, the passage. Uh, dear Lord, we, we thank you for this time to 
to come together to worship you, to um, just celebrate this Memorial Day. We just pray that we can remember all those who served and, and served like Christ and laying down their lives for their friends. We just pray that we can remember them and remember what Christ has done for us on the cross, that he gave his life for us um, so that we could be uh, living eternal, uh, free, uh, free from the bondage of sin. Uh, we just pray that you bless our hearts with the word today, that you impress it on us and help us to just remember it and just make it a part of who we are as it is God-breathed. Just fill us with the Holy Spirit. Help us to understand. Reveal the word to us. Teach it to us. Amen. All right, so uh, before we read the passage, I want to give you a little bit of background on the book of Hebrews. I'm preaching through the book of Hebrews at my church over uh, Pennsylvania Newtown Christian Church, the Chinese church in Newtown, and we're going through the whole book of Hebrews, and I got to tell you, it's been so rewarding going through it because the amount of just deep truths that are in this book, and I just want to let you know kind of what it's about. That way we can kind of see what the author is doing here. Now, the, the, the theme of Hebrews, like I said, is that Christ is like the center of everything, and he's not just the center. He's superior to just about everything. He's superior to the old system. He's superior to the temple, to the tabernacle, to the ark. He's superior to the sacrifices. Um, He's a superior high priest, which is what we're going to be going over here. He's superior to everything, superior to the angels, right? He's superior. That's just the theme. Now, the book of Hebrews is written to the Hebrews, and it's written in a time of persecution for the church. So the author of Hebrews is trying to encourage and exhort the the Jews who converted into Christianity to hold fast to their faith and not to return to the old things which are inferior in every possible way to Christ. So that's what the the book of Hebrews is about. So written in a time of persecution, um, it's all about Christ being superior. And there's another important theme that shows that all of the old system, the law, the temple, the tabernacle, it's all just a shadow of what's actually going on in heaven. So when the high priest brings the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies, right, and he sacrifices on the altar and he pours the blood out, that's supposed to symbolize the washing away of sins. And it's supposed to symbolize the priest going into the presence of God in heaven, even though he's not, he's, it's supposed to symbolize that so that he's taking away like the sins first for, you know, he sacrifices for himself and the sins of the people. And that's supposed to be what's going on, symbolizing what's going on in heaven. And all of the temple, all the sacrifices are all supposed to symbolize that. And now we're going to look at how Jesus is the great high priest. But going back to the persecution, I have a quote here from uh, Adolf Saphir. It says, Though deprived of the temple, with its priesthood and altar and sacrifice, the apostle reminds the Hebrews that we have the real and substantial temple, the great high priest, the true altar, the one sacrifice, and with all its offerings, the true access into the very presence of the most holy. So, again, these these, uh, Jews were being persecuted, so they weren't really allowed to go into the temple on Saturday, right, and worship. So he's being like, hey, look, that, that Saturday worship, uh, you know, it doesn't even matter because it's inferior, so don't go back to it. Because if you do go back to it, it's not going to help you. The real sacrifice is here. The real forgiveness of sins is here. Okay, so now that we got the intro out of the way, um, let's look at the passage. It's Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, 
But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It's just like the best, right? You, you read that and you're just like, wow. That's amazing, right? There's so many things in there that we could definitely talk about, and I'm going to try and go through all of it. And really what I'm going to try and do while I'm preaching is not mess this up because, honestly, you could just read that passage ten times, and that would be enough, right? This passage is so powerful and so full of deep truths that we need to take to heart so that we can understand what, what access to God, what confidence that we have in our great high priest who's mediating for us, Right? So verse 14, let's just start it off. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. He ascended into heaven. The the high priest before him, they didn't literally ascend into heaven, right? They're going through the veil. Do you guys know about the veil in the temple? This veil was to separate the holy area from the holy of holy areas. And that holy of holy areas is where the presence of God was in the temple. So if he went in there and he had some kind of uncleanness or sin, he would die because he is now in the presence of God and he would die. Now, Jesus literally ascended to heaven, went through the veil, right, into into heaven itself, and now he's presenting sacrifices for us in the literal presence of God right now. So anytime that you sin, you have a great high priest who's sitting at the right hand of the Father who's making sacrifices for you for your forgiveness and grace whenever you need it. Now, I don't want you to miss how important that is because it's very important, right? You can't undervalue this enough. And we, you know, we don't have a temple. We don't have this sacrificial system but to the jews who are listening to this this is really significant and we may not be able to appreciate it that much but we will be able to appreciate it more as we move through this passage so he says let us hold firmly to the faith we profess verse 15 for we do not have a high priest who is uh, unable to empathize with our weaknesses but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet he did not sin This is a common thought that um, I think may have been a a reasonable objection in the past. And I think I've even said this here before. Many people, when praying to God prior to Christ, could have leveled against God a wrong, but maybe a reasonable um, charge against God. That God doesn't get what we're going through, right? God's in heaven, right? He's so separate from us. He's so holy. Like, there's nothing. He can't even relate to us because of how apart from us he is, right? That's what holy means, set apart. He is the very definition of holy. So how could he possibly understand what it's like to be tempted by sin? The book of James literally says he cannot be tempted by evil. And yet here we are being tempted by, how could he understand? He's, I know he's God. He knows everything, but but there's a, you know, maybe there's a difference between experiencing it yourself and just knowing about it, right? So maybe you could make an argument that God doesn't get it. He doesn't get what it's like to mourn for the, the loss of a loved one. He doesn't get what it's like to be tempted by sin in a way that just feels unbearable, the weight of temptation, just being tempted into it, and you can't overcome it. You know, that may have been a reasonable wrong, again, but it would have been a reasonable objection. That all gets shattered completely 
when Jesus enters the picture. He goes into the world, becomes a human in every way. Literally, earlier in the book of Hebrews, it says that he became a human in every way, just as we are. Every way. He was born into the world. I mean, it doesn't get much more human than that, right? These, these kids are so helpless and weak and pathetic. You know, I said Tatiana all the time. She doesn't like it. But um, they, are, they are pathetic and they are weak and they cry and, you know, they just need to be cared for all the time. And Jesus, God himself, I mean, I can't even imagine what it's like to go from, like, in heaven to a human. I can't even imagine that alone, let alone being brought in, not, not just like zapped onto earth, like as a king ready to slay the enemies, right? He came as a baby and grew up as a child. I mean, anyone who has kids knows that this is really significant stuff. And he's able to empathize with our weakness, right? The Bible talks about how he gets tired and thirsty and hungry, fasting 40 days, 40 nights, um, how he mourns. He mourns at the death of a friend, right? He feels the suffering of being a, a human being, just like we are, still fully God in every way, but fully human at the same time. And this weakness, this suffering, this aging, you know, I'm only 26, but I already feel like the effects of aging, and I know it's going to get worse, but um, I already feel all my joints start hurting, right? Yeah, a lot worse, right? Uh, I'm really not even that old yet, but I guess I've done enough damage to my body, but um, I know it's going to get far worse, but like Jesus gets it, right? And talk about pain, right? Who on earth is more familiar than pain than Jesus, right? suffering, uh, a man familiar with pain, uh, familiar with, with uh, sorrow, as Isaiah 53 says, this guy gets the pain that we go through. So if you ever are praying and you're like, man, I just don't know if God understands the pain that I'm going through. I lost a loved one. I don't think, I don't know how, how he could possibly understand. Now you know, because now you have God in the flesh suffering in every way, just as we have and more so. And not only did he suffer like us, but he was also tempted like us, tempted like us. Now, I know there's great debates about whether or not being tempted itself is a sin. I remember we had an entire Bible study. I'm sure Matthew's watching this right now and thinking, oh, no, what's he going to say? Because we did an entire Bible study on this topic. Um, It was like, is the temptation itself sin? I don't think we can say yes because of this verse. He tempted in every way just as we are and yet did not sin. Now, it depends, I think, on what you do with the temptation, right? Because if you're presented with a temptation and you give into it, obviously that's sin, right? Desire after it is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin gives birth to death, as the book of James says. But What we're looking at here is something a little bit more nuanced, I think. What you do with sin, or what you do with temptation, is what happens to sin. Because you can look at the passage where Jesus says that even if you've ever uh, lusted after uh, someone, right, it's already like you committed adultery. So it's like you were tempted by them, you lusted after them, so you sinned. But there's, I mean, there's got to be something. And I think that it goes down to what you do with the temptation, right? Have you ever seen that experiment with the kids in the marshmallows. Have you, have you ever seen that? You put a kid in a room alone with a marshmallow on the table in front of him. And 
that's the temptation, right? Kids love marshmallows. So you put them there, you sit them down, you put them in front of it, and then you say, okay, if you don't eat the marshmallow in 10 minutes, I'll come back in and I'll give you another one or something like that. And it's supposed to be to see how well they can react to delayed gratification, whatever. But what it really is, it's like a, a temptation test. You put them there and you say, don't eat the marshmallow and I'll give you another one. And then they can sit there and they can ponder it. I remember watching the video and one of the girls, I think she, um, rather than like standing there and just like staring at it like some of the other kids do, like they just go like this, right? Um, instead of doing that, she just like puts her head down like this so that she can't see it. And then you see her peeking every now and again. But you know, she's like trying her best not to be tempted by this. And I think that that, um, is a good, uh, maybe a good analogy for what, what it is to be tempted, right? Are you going to sit there and just let the temptation tempt you and let your brain go around in all different ways? Or are you going to run away? Are you going to flee? Like, I always point to Joseph, right? Joseph, when he's being tempted by Potiphar's wife, what does he do? He doesn't sit there in the room and just be like, you just have the, the girl draping over him. Oh, Joseph, come to bed with me. You know, he doesn't sit there and just let it happen. He flees. He literally runs away, right? He runs away from the temptation. And, and I don't think that anyone would say Joseph sinned in what he did, right? He was being tempted, but he didn't sin. That's like the whole point of the story, right? So I think that that's kind of the nuance that's happening here. And if you think that Jesus doesn't understand what temptation is like, here's another analogy. I was reading a commentary once, and he talked about how um, being tempted and not falling into the sin is equivalent to bearing the full weight of the temptation. Because if you are tempted by something and then you fall into the sin, well, then you didn't bear the full weight of the temptation, did you? You gave into it, right? And he equated it actually to, to weightlifting. And now I like weightlifting. Some of you know that. Now, what if I, what if I said, like, Oh, you know, do you know what 500 pounds feels like? Do you know what that feels like? Have you ever picked up 500 pounds? Probably not, right? Most people haven't. But if, if I said, well, I know what that feels like, so, you know, I can understand it, but you haven't picked it up, so you don't really get what it feels like, right? You don't really understand what it feels like. So um, you can say, like, oh, I can like, kind of feel like what 500, pound, uh, 500 pounds is in my hands, but I, d- I don't, never really experienced it. And then now Jesus is kind of leveling that accusation back at you. He's like, well, you say that I don't understand it, but actually I'm the one who bore the whole weight of it. I've been tempted by Satan himself. Satan himself, the tempter, like literally the tempter, Satan, has tempted me, and I bore up under that weight. Have you? Have you been tempted by Satan? Did you withstand it? You're getting tempted by Private Joe over here, and I got tempted by Satan, and you're falling for this guy, let alone Satan. So he gets the temptation better than we get the temptation because he bore up under all of it, and he did not fall. He was able to hold it. Now, going back to the passage, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. That weakness that we have is our weakness towards sin. And yet he is bearing that weakness for us so that we can then go to him to help carry the weight for us, right? We can't overcome the temptation by ourselves. We have to come near to God, and he will come near to us, and that is how we can overcome our sin. Okay, so I hopefully that makes some sense. I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to explain this because, like I said, there's a lot of debates on the topic, and I didn't really want to get into all of it. So if you want to get a different opinion, go talk to Matthew or something. Um, (laughs) 
That's a little shot at Matthew. <laughs> okay, so if you didn't notice in verse 14, there's a little thing at the beginning that says, therefore. Now, anytime you see a therefore, right, old youth pastor joke, you have to figure out why it's there for. Like, what's, the, what's that there for? You've got to figure it out. Because um, he's saying this little section right after another section that you guys are probably very familiar with, because I know my dad quotes it often, uh, verse uh, 12 through 13, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, able to pierce the vision of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature can hide from it, but all, I'm going to do my dad. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's right before this passage where he's about to say in verse 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Doesn't that seem like a bit of a contradiction almost. He just got done saying God sees every thought and intention you've ever had, and he knows you're weak, and he can empathize with your weakness because he went through it. He knows you're weak to temptation. He knows you're going to fall into temptation, right? And yet he just said, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence. That sounds crazy. Whenever people sin, what's our first reaction? What's Adam and Eve's first reaction after they sin? Guilt, Guilt. next. Passing the blame, yeah. That's my favorite. No. <laughs> uh, no, you sin, right? And then they immediately are like, oh, God's here. Time to hide, right? Time to hide, right? I remember when I was eight years old. Uh, at eight years old in my family, you get a pocket knife. It's like, I mean, you guys know my dad. He loves blades and knives and swords, whatever. And he gave me a pocket knife. And I remember being like, wow, this is so cool. And I opened it, and then I didn't know how to shut it. <laughs> so I had this open pocket knife, and I didn't know what to do with it. And then I was like, oh, well, you know, you see movies, and there's like this old guy like whittling away at a stick. I'll go whittle a stick. That's what I'm going to do with my knife. And when you whittle a stick, you whittle away from your hand but not me. I was like, I'm different. I'm going to go towards my hand. <laughs> and sure enough, it's like the first thing I do, right? I cut my thumb open really bad. And I was just thinking in my head, oh no, if dad sees that I cut my thumb open, he's going to take my knife away because I'm not ready for it. So I'm bleeding everywhere, right? I'm sitting in my garage bleeding all over the place. And I probably should have got stitches, but I didn't. I instead, I think I got like a, some tissues from the bathroom and then duct tape and I just duct taped my thumb and then I just left it, right? I just left it like that. And I don't know if my parents even noticed. I mean, it's hard when you have so many kids. It's like, it's like, oh, what is it? Got duct tape on or something? Whatever. Yeah, fine. Just, just don't, don't bring it up. Right, we're not going to the hospital. I've got plenty of stories about not going to the hospital, mom. And I got food poisoning. <laughs> That's a story for another time. I got E. coli, and my mom didn't want to take me to the hospital, even though I was puking everywhere. Whatever. I survived barely. Um, but yeah, so they're like, yeah, whatever. Fine. You have duct tape. Don't even worry about it. Um, but yeah, the first, my first thought is I couldn't shut my knife. I'm bleeding everywhere. And my, there's blood all over the knife, right? So the first thing I do is I hide my knife 
on the top shelf in my bedroom, and then I duct tape my thumb, and then I pretend like nothing happened, even though it really hurt. And I was not. So that's like my first reaction. It wasn't like a sin necessarily, maybe like lying to my parents, but um, it wasn't a sin. But you know what I mean? Like the, the, when you know you're going to get in trouble, your first reaction is to hide. It's, it's to hide, right? That's just how it is. Um, and yet that's not what God is telling us to do here. God sees everything. Like, you're not fooling anyone. Duh. God sees everything. So he's like, look, I saw it. I know you're weak. I know you're going to fall into temptation. What are you doing trying to hide from me? I'm the guy who can get you out of it. I'm the one who can pick up the weight. You know, I'm the one who can get you out of this situation. Why are you hiding from the only one who can save you? That makes no sense, right? He's the mediator. He's the one who's bringing you forgiveness for what you just messed up. You spilled the water on the floor. You know, he'll he'll clean it up. He's got the mess. He's the one who saves you. Don't hide from the one who saves you. If you come out of here with anything, that's what I want you to come out with. Mercy and grace is found in verse 16. When I was a kid, my dad used to just mumble under his breath. And when I heard him doing that, I used to think he was just crazy. Um, like, we would be, like, watching a movie, and i just hear him over there. And I'm like, what is he doing? Like, pay attention to the movie. Um, but what I found out that he was doing later on in life is saying, mercy and grace. Mercy and grace. Over and over and over again. Mercy and grace. Mercy. Repeat it over and over again. Keep it in your head so that anytime you mess up, and dads mess up, right? I'll tell you many stories about Chucky messing up. But mercy and grace, mercy and grace. As a dad now, I get it. You mess up. You get angry. Yesterday, Wolfgang woke up, and Tatiana wasn't home, so he was hungry. And I'm like, look, I got no food for you. I don't know what to do. And he's crying over and over again. And I'm like, I never thought I could be so mad at a baby. They're hopeless, right? They can't do anything. And I'm mad at the baby. What am I? I'm like an adult, right? So all I'm thinking is, like, after I got done being mad at the baby, I just kind of, like, put him down. I'm like, fine, you can cry. Wait for Tatiana to get home. And then I just, like, sat there, and I'm like, Mercy and grace, mercy and grace, right? <laughs> what am I supposed to do, right? What am I supposed to do? I mean, I just got done getting mad at a baby. How am I supposed to get out of that one, right? That's kind of messed up. But I'm sure many of the parents can understand what that's like. <laughs> getting mad at kids is just what we do. Um, so, yeah, uh, verse 16. Uh, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, when I was preparing this sermon. I actually prepared this prior to Tatiana um, having Wolfgang, and I was ready to preach it at my church, but then she had the baby, so then they gave us time off, and then I just kind of pocketed this. And then when I was coming back in, I knew I was going to preach on this because this is what I had in line, but ask Tatiana immediately. I'm just like, man, I don't know if this is right. What if I got something out? The Holy Spirit's like putting something on my heart, and he put on my heart um, a parable in Luke chapter 11, so if you want to turn to Luke chapter 11 with me, feel free. Um, and you might wonder why Luke chapter 11 is being put on my heart. And I was wondering the same thing. I'm like, God, look, I already got a sermon ready to go. You know, I don't need to add anything or change something. But he just kept putting this on my heart. And I was like, why this? Why this? And then one night I was thinking about it. And I was just like, he's putting it on my heart because... It's this passage. 
It's this passage. It's one of the parables. It's actually one of my favorite parables, and it's a very weird parable. So let's read it together. Luke chapter 11, verse 5. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, let, uh, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door's already locked and my children are in bed with me. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. <laughs> I mean, I love this parable. Uh, then it goes on. So I ask, uh, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of your fathers, if your son asks him for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Do you realize the shameless audacity that we have to ask God for forgiveness for our sins, let alone to ask for the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. How many times do we sin every day? How many times prior to being saved did we curse God's name, did we insult him, insult Christians, say, oh, these guys are whack jobs, and, and God's some loony, whatever, some control freak, whatever. We, we have cursed God. We've, we've broken all of his laws. We've done everything wrong almost every step of the way, and yet... We have the shameless audacity to go to God and ask for forgiveness. Ask for the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. God himself dwelling in you. You wicked person. You sinful person. You're going to go up to the king of the universe and ask him for forgiveness for what you've done. You have destroyed his creation. You brought sin into the world through what you've done. And yet you have that shameless audacity. That's right. I am. I have shameless audacity to stand before God and ask for forgiveness. Why? How? You have a great high priest who is mediating between you and God. God's own son standing in the gap, right? Sin separates us from God. Now you have one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ, the son of God, your great high priest, bringing your sins to God, sacrifice for their sins once for all, covering over all of it so that you can approach the throne of God with confidence. Because if you don't have that mediator, you're not going before God. You're not. Isaiah, in, in Isaiah, I think it's chapter 6, he stands before God in the presence of God. Isaiah, the prophet, right? One of the, the greatest prophets in the Bible. And what does he do before God? Crumbles. Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. He can't stand before God. Isaiah can't. And if he's not standing before God, I'm not showing up to the party. I'm not going. I can't go. 
And none of us can. None of us can stand before a holy God and be saved. Unless there's a mediator. And that is who Jesus is. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What's the difference between mercy and grace? Grace is a gift, yeah. Mercy is when you do something wrong and you don't get what you deserve. Grace is when you don't do anything, but you receive something. It's two very important pieces. Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. Grace is when you do get what you don't deserve. That's what it's all about. Mercy and grace. We do not receive the wages of our sin, which is death. We do receive eternal life and forgiveness. That's what it's all about. Now, I don't know about you guys, but even though I know this, even though I feel it in my heart that Jesus is mediating for me, there are still so many times when I mess up and my first reaction is still hide. Still hide. I'm sure everyone can relate to this. Hide. Oh, I just, I sin so bad, I can't approach God right now. I I need to make it right somehow, then I'm going to go approach God, right? I'm sure we all feel this sometimes. But that's not what he wants us to do. He wants us to shamelessly approach him. Because what, I mean, really, what is it when you don't want to go to God when when you sin? What is it when you don't want to go to God for forgiveness? You think that you can just make up for it yourself. In a sense, it's pride. Pride is when you think that you can do something without anyone else's help. When you feel, oh, I just have too much pride. I, I can't ask for help here. I just need to do it myself. That's really what it is. And we need to confess that and go to the throne for mercy and grace. Our mediator standing between us is going to give you mercy and grace. Now, let's not forget whose blood is being presented at the altar. Whose blood is being presented at the altar, right? The, the priest goes in, he sacrifices a bull, a ram, you know, for the sins. But Hebrews says that the sacrifices of, of bulls and rams cannot take away sin. It does not take away sin. The only thing that's going to be paying for us is another human. That is why he had to become a human in every way, just as we are, so that he could be that substitution sacrifice for us. That sacrifice is free for us. It's grace. It's a free gift. But it wasn't free for Jesus. He's the one who paid it all. He's the one. Nothing but the blood can take away our sins. How great a sacrifice. It really, it really comes down to love, of course, as all things do with, with God. It comes down to love. And I just struggle to understand how a love like this could even exist. I, as a human, I can't love like this. 
I can't. It's impossible. I, I don't think that any of us could love like this. But then you read stories, church history, people suffering, dying. And you start to see the love of Christ in these people, right? These people are being tortured and, and murdered for, the, for their faith. And, and you're just like, how, how are they withstanding this punishment? How are they withstanding this persecution? And it's because of the love of God. Once you experience the love of God, God will empower you to love others in the same way. James, you know, according to church history, James, the one who wrote the book of James, he was brought up to the very place where Jesus was tempted, the portico, like overlooking the the city, right? He was brought up to Solomon's portico. They put him up there where Jesus was tempted by Satan, saying, just throw yourself off. And, you know, just like the psalm says, you know, the angels will bear you up so that your foot may not strike the stone, right? He's like, throw yourself off and, and whatever, you know. And James is brought to that very spot. And they throw him off. Then they throw stones down on him. And while he's on the ground, dying, he's praying for the people throwing stones. And someone on the ground yells up to him, stop, he's praying for you. He's praying for you. Who does that sound like? Jesus on the cross. That's Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them. He's interceding for them while they're killing him. That love is unthinkable. It's a love that can only come from God. It's divine love. It's perfect love. Agape love. And because of that love, it overcomes all evil, good, overcoming evil, so that we can now approach the throne of God with confidence, receive mercy and grace in our time of need. And all we have to do is go to the throne. Ask for that forgiveness. Don't hide. Go approach God's throne. Receive mercy. Receive grace. Don't hide from the only one who can save you. When you're being tempted, go to the only one who can bear that temptation for you. He was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this amazing passage that shows the very love of God, mercy and grace for people who don't deserve mercy and grace. We who have sinned, who have cursed your name, who have blasphemed you, lied, stolen, cheated, stole, steal, whatever we do, we do all these horrible things against you and against your children. And yet you ask us to come for mercy and grace, for forgiveness, this free gift from you. We pray, Lord, that, that 
you would give us that confidence that we don't think that we should have, that we would just want to hide. We pray that you just give us that, that peace to know that we can go to you in our time of weakness. Guide us, Lord. If anyone has not approached the throne of God for mercy and grace, they think, my sins are too great. I cannot show my face before God. Just know that you have the perfect mediator who sacrificed himself, poured out his blood on the cross for you, presenting that one and perfect sacrifice for all of time, once for all. And that he overcame death, rose again, so that we too can share in that resurrection. Amen.